September 24, 2006, service led by Barbara. The ultimate tragedy is not the brutality of bad people, but the silence of good people. So said Martin Luther King. I find that a very humbling statement, particularly from such a man who refused to stay silent and whose speaking out ultimately cost him his life. The ultimate tragedy is not the brutality of bad people, but the silence of good people. We've begun looking at the Five Core Values series. We've been looking at it in Monday night at 8 for a few weeks. We're going to continue to look at it tomorrow night and for another few weeks to come. So if you'd like to come and be part of those, you'd be most welcome. But we're beginning with the prophetic community. And it seems to me that Martin Luther King is talking about a prophetic people. The good people need to have those prophetic voices and speak out, not stay silent. We're not called to be a people who stay silent. For some of us, that may gladden our hearts. Some of us could talk for England. But of course, that's not what he meant. And if we look at it seriously and look at what Martin Luther King was saying, it becomes an uncomfortable truth. For we have come to be a people who are silent. We've come to value our acceptance and respectability in society. In the early days, the Baptist family was not a respectable family to be part of. To be a Baptist was to be against the law. And for centuries, there were certain rights that were denied to us because we were Baptists. There has always been that prophetic edge to Baptist existence. I think it's probably unfair, or maybe it isn't, I don't know, is it unfair to suggest that since we've become full members of society, we've actually become too respectable, or at least too concerned with our own respectability, and we've become silent and unnoticed because we've become just like everyone else. We've become sucked into society's ways of doing things and have become so concerned not to offend people that we dare not speak out. It doesn't mean there's not a place for tact and diplomacy. I think there is. But it does mean that sometimes we have to face people with the uncomfortable truth of how God views their actions. I think the people who heard the prophet Amos would have been made profoundly uncomfortable by his words. Because the words that he spoke were not his words. Amos was a shepherd or a sheep farmer. There's some dispute as to whether he was actually a poor shepherd or a man of some substance. But he was a man from the south, the southern kingdom of Judah, speaking to the northern people of Israel. But they weren't his words of judgment that he was speaking They were God's words. It's not important whether we approve or disapprove of what people are doing, nor whether people are doing things our way or not. 
But what does God think? What does God think of their actions? To discover this, of course, we have to keep in touch with God, listening to him in prayer and studying his word. If we live close to God, we won't be surprised when he speaks, or at least not as surprised anyway. If we expect him to speak, then when he does, we will be expecting it. And the experience of Amos is instructive. I think so often we've become attracted to Elijah's God of the still small voice, that we forget that God speaks too as the roaring lion that Amos speaks of. You read Amos chapter 1, you see that he's talking, God speaks as a roaring lion, and there's some powerful images in that chapter 5 that Bill read for us. We tend not to think of God as a roaring lion. We've tried, I think, and I fear that sometimes we've almost succeeded in taming God. God has become our friend, our pet, our hobby. We've domesticated God, and rather than aligning our lives and will with his, have sought to align his life and will with ours. He becomes the celebrity endorsement of our way of life. That's certainly how it was for those Israelites to whom Amos spoke. And that's why God was so mad at them. They lived in relatively peaceful times. It was the calm before the storm. Chapter 5 was definitely not good news for them. I can't for one minute imagine that they were pleased to hear what God said to them through Amos. We look particularly at those last few verses that Bill read for us, verses 21 through to 24. We see that God is totally rejecting their worship, and they thought they were good at worship. He rejects it not by the words that are used, but in the way it's said. Seven kinds of worship are listed. Religious festivals, solemn assemblies, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, hymns of praise, and music. Seven are listed, and all seven are rejected. Seven was the perfect number for the Jewish people. Thus, God's sevenfold rejection was total, absolute, complete. He was as disgusted as it was possible to be with their worship. Not because it wasn't any good, clearly it was of a very high quality, There were plentiful offerings, wonderful music and hymns of praise. But their heart wasn't in it. They were worshipping because they always had, because it was the thing to do. It was good to be seen being in worship. Amos was speaking in affluent, comfortable times to affluent, comfortable people. People who were worshipping God because it was the right thing to do. They were simply making a noise, making a commotion in the holy place, rather than seeking communion with God, the Holy One. And I ask myself, I need to ask myself this every Sunday, and I ask you the question, have you come here this morning to seek communion with God, the Holy One? Or are you simply here making a noise in a holy place? The outward appearance of your worship will be the same either way. Your neighbour won't know, I won't know, but God knows. 
We can fool others and even ourselves, but we can't fool God. God knows what's in our hearts. He knows what's in our hearts as we come to worship this morning. He knows how we've prepared to come. He knows if we've prepared to come. How have you prepared to come to worship this morning? You just turned up in your Sunday clothes. Or have you spent some time preparing your heart and your mind to come and meet with God? Do you come on a Sunday thinking, I wonder if I'll know the hymns this morning, or I wonder how long the sermon's going to be, or I wonder if so-and-so's there because I really need to talk to them about what we're doing next month? Or do you come thinking, yes, I'm coming into God's presence, coming into God's presence to worship and I'm going to sing my praises to him in old ways and new ways. Or I need to hear from God right now. Maybe he'll speak in the reading of scripture or in the prayers. Or I've had a busy week. Worship will refresh me and renew me for the next one. Do you spend some time in the days of each week praying for the person who's going to be leading worship on the Sunday following? Do you ask God to prepare their hearts and minds to speak as he prepares yours to listen? No? Well, I suggest you're not alone in that. But maybe I could encourage you to start. And do you come recognising your responsibility for worship? Yes, someone else has put it together and someone leads it. But we're all participants. We all contribute. We are all worshippers here. We have all come to worship. We've all been invited to worship, called to worship by the God who loves and saves us. We are not the focus of this time. God is. Yes, God is with us 24-7. He can and he does speak to us as we do the washing up, as we drive to work, as we dig or sit in the garden. But here in this time... God invites us to meet him in a special and unique way. And he invites us to take it seriously and to approach it with a sense of excitement, expectancy and awe. I think that the people Amos was speaking to didn't do that. Worship for them was not about God, but it was about them. How do we know that? How did and how does God know that? Because what they said and did in their worship bore no resemblance to how they lived the rest of their lives. It's been said that you become like the God you worship. So if they'd been offering true worship to God, then they would have become like him and their behaviour would have matched their words. just want to read those verses 21 to 24 again. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your hymns of praise. They are only noise to my ears. I will not listen to your music, no matter how lovely it is. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, a river of righteous living that will never run dry. 
that biblical justice that God demands is not an abstract concept. It's not the picture of a blindfold woman with scales weighing up the pros and cons of an argument. It's active and dynamic. It rushes along like an unstoppable flood. If you've seen pictures of a flood or if you've even been caught in one, you'll know that flood water is unstoppable. It flows wherever it wants, taking out and overwhelming anything that is in its path. That's how God's justice and righteousness need to be expressed. They need to pour out of God's people with unstoppable force. Amos didn't make himself popular by speaking God's word in this way to God's people. In fact, shortly after this, they drove him out of the country. But he knew that they needed to hear it, so he spoke out. He was God's prophet to God's people. God calls us to be prophetic people too. We're called to live out, to proclaim that justice and righteousness to the world. And of course, it's in, that, in the life of Jesus that God's justice and righteousness become spectacularly, uniquely human. Our reading from John reminds us that at that most solemn festival of the Jewish year, in the most central place of the Jewish faith, Jesus discovers the huge injustice of the temple trade taking place. Jesus is completely angry. I'm so glad that actually all the Gospel writers have included this story in their writings. For the Synoptic Gospel writers, for Matthew, Mark and Luke, the story happens at the end. For John, it happens at the beginning of the Jesus story. doesn't really matter here why, but it sets the scene of Jesus who is so incensed by the injustice of what was happening that he turned the people out of the temple courts. I don't think it was the fact that they were trading that was the issue. It was the fact that they were taking advantage of people, taking advantage of the poorest people in society and making it hard for them to worship God. If you came to the temple to make an offering, which you had to do under Jewish law at certain times of life and at certain times of the year, you were only allowed to make the offering with goods that had been bought in the temple courts using temple money and the prices charged, the money changed in favour of the traders, not in favour of the people. The injustice could not, would not be tolerated by God. And as Jesus spoke out about a system that the respectable people, the religious people of his day supported and encouraged, they turned on him. What is your authority to do this? they ask. Tell us who and whose you are, and maybe we'll let you through. Conform to our rules and do it our way. Their territory was threatened, raw nerves were touched, and they demanded answers. Of course, when Jesus gave them an answer, they didn't understand it. This temple will be destroyed, and I will rebuild it in three days. They thought he was talking about bricks and mortar. We know he was talking about the temple of his life. They couldn't believe that this man was saying these things. Jesus' quotation of Psalm 69, verse 9, Passion, 
for God's house burns within me. We find that in verse 17. By claiming that, Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to be equal with God. The Jewish authorities understood. And they needed to know if that was what he was really saying. Give us a sign. If you are the Messiah, the one we're expecting, show us. We, we, we will believe you if you give us a sign. Jesus tells them that a sign will be provided. God's new and true dwelling place on earth, that's Jesus himself, will be demolished, will be killed, and then three days later will be rebuilt. He will rise again. John tells us that they didn't understand, and nor did Jesus' disciples. But when his promised sign came true, the disciples remembered his words and their faith was strengthened. Jesus speaks out and acts prophetically when he sees the injustice of the way the temple trade is conducted. As people are forced to deal in temple currency exchanged at exorbitant rates. He declares himself at the beginning of his ministry in John. Declares himself to be God's person, God's temple, God's dwelling place on earth. The new and living temple. Opening up the way to God. What does that mean for us 2,000 years later? I think the world has not changed too much. And we are called, too, to act prophetically, to speak prophetically to the places where we live and work and in the wider world. We're called to live out the faith we confess, to care for those who have no one to care for them, to care for those who are exploited and abused, both within our communities and in our world. To speak out when things are not being done in accordance with God's will. To ensure that what we proclaim in our worship is lived out in the rest of our lives. It's no good as coming here and singing some of the fine words we've already sung and some of the words we will continue to sing this morning if we don't actually do anything about it. It's not our sense of justice and righteousness we're called to proclaim, but God's. We have to leave our prejudices and our differences behind and seek to work together for the common good. We have to keep ourselves informed of what's happening around the world so that our giving and our praying and our living can be properly informed. We need to be brave enough to speak out. Not so that we can get on our own particular hobby horse, but so that God's voice is heard. God speaks to and through us. May we have ears to listen and minds and hearts willing to obey. Let's pray.